Welcome to a coffee room chat in ENT. This is the second series of podcasts where experts in the field discuss their experience in the management of important and challenging aspects of ENT surgery. This is a collaboration between ENT UK and the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh, and it's presented and produced by me, James Tyson, an ENT surgeon from Cambridge and the director of e-learning for ENT UK, uh, and of course with the help of the team at the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh. Our seventh episode was put together with the help of the British Society uh, for Facial Plastic Surgery and features Sean Carey and Jonathan Joseph discussing local anaesthetic techniques in rhinological surgery. So Sean Carey is the ENT surgeon of Newcastle upon Tyne and Jonathan Joseph is an ENT surgeon at Royal National Throat, Nose and Ear Hospital. And uh, they both have an interest in local anaesthetic techniques in rhinology, and we're discussing the case mix, how to do it, uh, where to do it, and the equipment that you will need. So, uh, hi, Jonathan. Nice to see you. How are you? Yeah, very well, thanks, Sean. How are you? Uh, very well. Very well, indeed. Yeah. Nice to get to the end of a of a working day. Uh, I've been doing a few local anaesthetic cases today. Um, and uh, I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to sort of start the podcast Talking about a case that that I'd um, I'd done today, I I think I've been doing been, been doing mo- mostly local anaesthetic polypectomies, but uh, we had a uh, a case today which was a um, uh, a mucosal of the uh, of the anterior ethmoid presenting itself quite nicely uh, at the axilla of the middle turbinate. So um, I'd spoken to the patient preoperatively about options. You don't really see those sort of cases very often. Mucoseals mm. that often that would necessarily be a good case for for local, but the patient was keen to avoid a, a general anaesthetic, and um, so we sort of talked about how we might be able to to go about doing it. Um, and uh, the, okay. what was what was nice is, as always, the case that um, that the uh, the septum was deviated to the opposite side slightly, so it gave me a, a nice airway. It's always nice when you look in, isn't it? And you see a, a clear airway on the side you want to operate. Absolutely, that's always a, a great advantage. Yeah, your heart sinks um, really uh, the pathologies on the <laughs> on the same side as a twisted septum. Certainly does. So uh, no, it's, it's uh, yeah, you don't get many mucus cells that are good for uh, local anaesthetic. Um, so uh, what? How did you go about with the uh, the actual application of the local? So I I started off with what I usually uh, use is some uh, neuropathies. So some uh, one in eighty thousand. Uh, uh, sorry, some. Uh, uh, I use five uh, percent cocaine, two mils of five percent. Um, add in one in a thousand adrenaline and make it up to about ten mils uh, with uh, with saline. So it's almost like a sort of modified Moffitt's. Pop that in the nose for about twenty minutes or so, um, and uh, uh, leave the patient uh, to uh, to anaesthetize during that time. And then brought the patient in and uh, popped a bit of um, lignus span into the, uh, the the area where the the uh, mucosal was presenting endonasally. Um, mm-hmm. And then it, it was quite a nice one, just able to make a, an incision over it with the uh, uh, with, a, with a 15 blade, um, move the mucosa laterally and medially to expose the underlying bone, which was fortunately very thin, and then just penetrated through into the body of the mucosal with a with a freer's uh, incision, and then opened it up with a with cold steel, just with a, a through cutting um, forceps. Oh, that sounds sounds excellent, um, and the patient presumably tolerated it quite well throughout. 
Yes, yeah, it seemed to. A little bit of discomfort um, with the uh, with the, the sort of bony part, um, but we took it slowly, uh, put a little bit more infiltration in, often find that just sort of settling the patient down a little bit, um, and then, uh, uh, op- again, opening up, making a nice wide opening, and because the bone was nice and thin, we were able to get a wide opening. I used the debrider to take away a little bit of the surrounding mucosa um, and was able to pop the telescope and get a nice view of the of the mucosal and I'd worked the patient up in the same way that you would do normally. You know, I'd done a CT showing that it was extending into the orbit, but not the skull base, um, and then an MR just to, to to you know to clarify those those boundaries as as well. I wanted to be absolutely mm. sure that everything was as it should be before I did something in under local anaesthetic, which might be perceived as as going a little bit rogue. So I had all the imaging in in, in, in absolutely. In place. Yeah. It's interesting what you say about the bone because um, uh, sometimes. I found that you have to you warn the patient beforehand. They might hear a, a slight crack, uh, particularly if I sort of medialize the, the middle turbinates, because it can be quite a shocking noise for them. Uh, but, but warning them and then sort of doing it gradually and slowly, and uh, and they can tolerate it surprisingly well. Yeah, I think I think you're right there. Actually, you know, it's uh, it, it that that sort of pre-op discussion is really important, isn't it? And there are there are factors yeah. that that. Um, that don't necessarily um, come up in a general anaesthetic, you need to consider a, lo- a local anaesthetic. Uh, is there anything else you talk about in your, your consent around about those sort of, uh, those sort of issues? Um, well, I say, it's, 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 as you say, it's all about talking through it. So I say, before you go in, I'm going to spray your nose with, with tosphenol canes, that's what I use, um, and then talk them through um, the injections that I'm going to give um and it's very much about um pre-warned uh and, and lots of information um and uh and, and and having the experience to be able to select those who you think are going to be good candidates and those who you think uh won't be so good for a local anesthetic um but uh but yeah it's all about learning the, the, the patter uh and, and getting them uh, nicely relaxed yeah, I think that's right. It's, it's a case of sort of identifying them in outpatients at the very outset, isn't it? When you're you're sort of looking at a patient and thinking, is this something we can do under local or are we going to have to do it under general? And you, and you get quite a good idea in outpatients, don't you? The, you know, the, sometimes the patient raises it themselves and say, well, can you do this under local anaesthetic? Other times you've got to introduce it as well. And I often find just sort of popping the telescope in and, and how they react to the, the rigid scope is quite a good pointer as to how good they'll be under local. What, what do you think? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I agree with that. Um, uh, yeah, you, you get that feeling, and then um, occasionally you say, "No, definitely, you're you're for general anaesthetic," and, that, and that's absolutely fine. Um, I, and even on the day, I, I, it's only happened to me once actually in that I can remember in the last year or so that the patient on the day was was almost having a panic attack, and I was even just putting the the whole the whole room and the sort of the operating theatre type environment, um, and uh, he just sort of we had to stop, and it was a very minor local anaesthetic um, t- inferior turbinate reduction. Um, we just have yep. to say, we just have to abandon uh, because uh, he, he couldn't tolerate it. Uh, and, and sort of, and that's okay. Uh, yep. You have to sort of ex- expect the fact that very occasionally um, you will have to pull out um, and, and sort of come, come back another day. Uh, mm. and, and, and as long as you know that and you don't push it too much and you don't traumatize the patient, certainly, then, yep. uh, then, that, then that, that's, a, that's fine. It's just part and parcel, I think. Yeah, yeah. 
No, I think you're right. I think you're spot on there, actually. You know, this isn't um, necessarily going to be right for every patient. And there are one or two patients mm. who kind of get all the way down the pathway. And then it's only when you're in the theatre and, and they're sort of mm. having it that they decide that it's just not it's not for not mm. for them. But as you say, that's a sort of minority of cases. Yeah. I, when I look at but, uh, I have to, uh, sorry, when I am um, when I'm mm. looking in the uh, the nose initially, uh, one of the things that always puts me off slightly is, is very edematous nasal mucosa and you know when you when you pop the telescope in and it, and it looks wet and inflamed and engorged. Um, does that put you off, or are you are you are you sort of a good to go with that? Um, I'd say I'm, I'm not too upset by that, partly because yep. I suppose I, I do a lot of turbinate surgery, um, yep. and that's almost expected. Um, but also, I've I've often been pleasantly surprised by how much of a difference the application of adrenaline-soaked uh, patties. Um, how much of a difference it makes, um, and yeah. so um, so uh, yes, of course you have to bear it in mind, and particularly if you're concerned about bleeding um, mm. and just access. But uh, but it doesn't sort of that that engorge mucosa in and of itself isn't isn't too much of a, a deterrent uh, as a general rule in, in my, my 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 experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, but, and uh, but going back to sort of. So I've gone after you. No, 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 no you, on you go. So but going back to the um, what we're talking about, the, the anxious patient and, and selecting the right one. So just so uh, occasionally I will use sedation. Um, yeah. Uh, and that will, um, so I choose it for patients either if they are extremely anxious or if I think I'm going to be doing something a little bit more invasive uh, where it can be a little uncomfortable. And so although the sedation isn't, isn't I'm not providing analgesia, I'm, I'm largely just using midazolam, it does just um, settle the patient sufficiently so that I can then really uh, apply the local and get good, good anesthetic cover uh, throughout the whole of the nose. Um, and, and usually that will uh, allow me to proceed um, without, without any problem. Um, and also there is an element of, um, amnesia. So even if it wasn't such a pleasant experience for the patient, they, they do forget that, which is good, uh, particularly if you ever don't have to repeat something. Um, so um, so we've, we've sort of looked at patient reported uh, satisfaction afterwards, and generally it's quite high, either because they've forgotten it or because it just sort of went very nicely and uh, and, and they they, you know, they were they were okay. So uh, but, but sedation is is something I don't use it very often, but certainly in in, in selected cases I do find it quite a quite helpful adjunct. Mm, no, I'm really I'm really interested in that because I think that um, you know that's one of the things that can really extend the boundaries of what we're doing and and bring more out of the uh, theater into the into the clinic so I, I think that's a really exciting development and it's great to, that um you know you're you're you're, you're sort of pushing that um um forward what can you give us an indication what um uh sort of a, a, a recipe you use and, mm. uh, and and how you administer it i'm really interested to hear about that so uh, the keeping it very simple so in terms of the actual uh, i just use the dazolam um uh, at some stage in the future um I may move on to adding in fentanyl, but that certainly has an element of, uh, of increased risk, particularly with respiratory depression. Um, but it does have that analgesic um, additional effect. Um, so the, my, my general principles are, it, it needs to be only ASA one or two patients. Um, and it's, it's delivered by me. It's, I don't have an anesthetist there with me. So um, I have to be absolutely 
um, sure of, of safety. Um, and uh, and I've been, I, I went on a, a sedation course, actually given by a dentist, because they are the experts in, in sort of operator delivered sedation. Um, so, uh, so I've done the course and, and, my, and I have a nurse with me who's also sedation trained. Uh, and then uh, w- one of the key principles really is about delivering it very, very slowly and gradually and titrating it to uh, the dose appropriate to that patient. Because although there's, there's fairly common amounts of dosages that you use, it's, it's individual for every patient. So you want them just to get to that point where they are accepting of the treatment um, and uh, and they're sort of quite sleepy but easily rousable and they're certainly still conscious. Um, and we, we take regular 50-minute uh, blood pressure and pol- uh, blood pressure monitoring. Um, we don't use capnography, which is uh, which is a, a subject that's debated amongst people that do sedation um, mm-hmm. uh, because it does give you a, a much more immediate, accurate uh, level of, of their sort of how well they're respirating. Um, but um, but that's sort of largely how I do it. Um, and uh, and then we recover them very quickly because a great advantage of midazolam is that it, it wears off quickly. So yeah. um, you, you've only got about 40 minutes or so um, before it's really wearing off. So, so you've got to, uh, and giving more, giving it, topping it up doesn't seem to have the same effect as giving it, the, giving it from the outset. So you know you've yeah. got that, that time frame to, to do what you need to do. And then, and then it wears off, and that's it. But it also means the patient, within an hour or so, uh, is, is fully alert and there. And yes, they have to take some precautions, but uh, they can they can leave and, and uh, safely with, with an escort, which is very important. Yeah, no, I mean that's that's one of the beauties of, of uh, doing things under local anaesthetic with or without sedation is the sort of rapid mm. throughput of patients, isn't it? You can Absolutely. you can really get the patients through the, the the service, whereas in in patients and bringing them into hospital, even as day cases, seem to seems to to have a bit of a, a block. I mean, I'm doing my the, 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 my sort of service. I always kind of um, based on it a bit like going to the dentist. So you know, you pitch up, you come to to outpatient clinic, um, you remain fully clothed with a gown, and we do the procedure in the um, in in a in a dedicated room uh, with a, a sort of sufficient number of air changes uh, to make it acceptable to um, uh, infection control, um, and uh, and that's worked quite quite well for us. I, I, yeah. Your your model with the station. Do you do that in the clinic, or have you got a, a, an alternative that you use? So we have a an area we call it the procedure zone. So it's it's halfway between a clinic and an operating theatre. So we have we have a, a small theatre effectively, um, and there's an adjacent recovery room. So um, so I sort of I consult the patients and any pre clinic in the recovery area, and then we move into the procedures. Uh, the actual procedure room, the operating room. But again, the patients are fully clothed just with a gown on. Um, yeah. And it, it's very much a, an ambulatory, like a dentist-type setup. Um, and and we, we are now um, faster, or I'd say more efficient than we used to be. So um, so it, certainly I've been doing it now for a couple of years, um, but I can certainly, and, and with, along with the team, it's not just me, it's the whole team, we can get through more cases now than we certainly used to um, because we're just more efficient at it. We know how to do it, how, what, what's work, what works. Um, and, uh, and and it's a very nice um, uh, sort of, it's, almost, it's not quite a production line, but you know, you really, mm. you get all the, all the little bits tweaked nicely. Uh, and and it, it, it is always much more efficient. Well, not more efficient, but much faster than a, than a, a normal operating theater uh, setup. Mm. 
And I, I think you, you described quite nicely there the, um, the sort of the impact of the of the clinician taking taking the sort of leadership role in this because our colleagues who decide to set something like this up will will have a will all have sort of different setups in their hospital that they can conform to and and, and part of the joy of doing something like this is is developing it isn't it you sort of you take Absolutely. on a new service um and and you're kind of pushing it leading it leading it on you have to to go through all the sort of um, processes the hospital requires so, so talking to your colleagues to get them be- behind you talking to people like infection control and clinical governance to make sure that uh, what you're doing is uh, is agreed by the uh, the trust, and then of course um, uh, training up colleagues who might ne- not necessarily be, particularly nursing colleagues, who might not necessarily be used to to doing the sort of procedures in in the outpatient or the the ambulatory setting that uh, uh, that you brought on uh, or, or that you're bringing to to uh, uh, to those lists. So it's it, it's um, it's a new service, and you and you, it's quite enjoyable for that reason, isn't it? Absolutely, you're very right. Yes, there's been a lot of hard work to get to this point. Um, but hugely rewarding um, mm. but to set this kind of thing up. And we were trying to find a sort of a name for it to sort of to say, you know, we are the Awake Surgery Centre or, or something like that, which we haven't quite done yet. But uh, but yes, it is developing a service. Uh, it's, it's collaborating with all the different uh, team members and, and asking the dentists, you know, how do you mm-hmm. do it? You, you're, you're the experts. Um, give us your, your experience. And, and that's, been, uh, that's been really good. Uh, and now trying to bring along fellow colleagues um, to to join in, uh, and, and the patients appreciate it as well. They they many of them like the idea, as you said, of this very sort of fast throughput, um, much much less downtime postoperatively, um, and uh, this sorry this ambulatory way to to do things, but always maintaining quality and achieving the same good outcomes that we would in a more traditional operating theatre. Yeah. And, and 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 sort of cases as well. I mean, I, I I don't know if you've kind of defined exactly what cases you you're going to do. Um, I'm still kind of even though I've been doing it since uh, we started in 2018. I'm still kind of finding my way. Started out with polyps, then kind of moved a little bit to um, doing things like mucosils, septal buttons, uh, um, extending the, the, the into the sinuses as well. Doing some middle metal antrostomy, some anterior ethmoidectomy. I haven't gone much further than that. I, I must say, I've got plenty of the, of the cases I've talk, talked about already. Um, but there's it, there's more we can do, isn't there? Absolutely. Uh, and so one example is septoplasty. So I have, and certainly initially, and and largely until now, I would do a an endoscopic septoplasty in the context of some kind of sinus operation or a um, or a, a turbinate procedure. Um, where mm. I felt that it was needed. But actually, um, I have done one or two now in a more traditional, um, using a headlights um, technique. Uh, and, uh, and again, as long as you're, you're explaining it to the patient um, and not, you're, not, you're not squeezing on the nostril too hard, because that's normally we get that Killian's or, or Cottle's retractor in and really open it up. So you have yeah. to be more, more delicate. Um, but, but yes, it's, as you say, it's expanding and pushing the boundaries of what we can do um and uh and, and seeing what's possible without yeah. taking risks uh and then you mentioned about anterior ethmoidectomy so i've also tried posterior ethmoidectomy it, it's it, i think that's more variable in some mm. patients it's just clearly a bit too much and, I, and i've stopped others it has been possible so um that's that's i guess possibly a step too far but uh 
but, uh, but certainly a good anti-erythmoidectomy is, is very much possible. Yeah, I, I think I've I've tried um, various blocks, um, but I find the sort of blocks, so that you know, so blocking the sphenopalatine ganglion or um, doing a, a, a greater palatine block, very good at anaesthetizing the lower part of the nasal cavity, but it just doesn't seem to reach this the superior and posterior part. So I'm like you, I I, I found kind of doing that a bit unsatisfactory. But I think the cases where you can do it is clearly cases where, uh, for instance, your patient has had previously had you know, an, an anti and post-eethmoidectomy and they've just got a whole collection of polyposis back again, you can do a very nice polypectomy all the way into those previously open sinuses if it's been done pro uh, properly and, if, if necessary, all the way into a frontal cavity in somebody who's had a, a draft 2B or a draft 3. So, you know, you don't yeah, necessarily absolutely. have to take those patients back to, back to theatre, do you? No, and, uh, and yeah, it's, 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 very, it's a very rewarding way of doing it and, it, and it's, it, it's, it's much faster as well. Um, and the the other concern that uh, people have had is about bleeding, um, mm. and uh, and and that there is good evidence to show, without necessarily fully understanding the reasons why, that there seems to be less bleeding in the awake patient than in, than in the anaesthetized patient, despite the fact that they're always hypotensive and and they're bradycardic under anaesthetic, but they they seem to bleed less. Something to do with the vasoconstrictive. Um, tone that's that's, that's maintained uh, in the awake yeah. patient. So um, so rarely, if ever, do I get issues with bleeding intraoperatively, and, and I, I presume you, you see the same thing. Yeah, I think you I think you're right there. I think uh, fear has got something to do with it. not so much fear in the surgeon, but fear in mm. the patient. Um, and that uh, you're right, that sort of adrenaline um, drive, the catecholamine drive, it's, uh, is is really good. But I think that you know, talking about you know anxiety in patients, it's really important that um, you know the surgeon or the team keep talking to the patient, don't they? You've got to you've got to have a little bit of patter, mm. you know, discussing you know what how Tottenham played last night or how Newcastle United played last night. Because I suspect in your part of the world, you know, football is a is a great, a great level, particularly with the uh, with the men. Uh, or talking about you know families or or grandkids and all that sort of stuff. You just got to find a common subject to, to keep going for this sort of I, I twenty forty minutes something like that. Do you find that's about as much as you you would do under a time yeah. under and look yeah. Look and and actually, that's a good point because occasionally I've gone over that. I've gone closer to an hour or more. And actually, mm. I, I possibly should have stopped earlier because I think it gets to a point where you know it, it, it's about right. It's enough. Um, yeah. You don't want to do too much. Um, and uh, but yeah, yes, you're, you're right. Up to about forty minutes, maybe an hour is is the maximum. Yeah, yeah, no. And uh, you sort of alluded to uh, sort of nosebleeds. I I haven't found that um, epistaxis is too much of a post-op complication either. Um, no. Um, no, I haven't I had a problem we, really. We we've published our, our sort of first group of uh, twenty odd patients, and uh, I think we had one uh, bleed. So you know, sort of five percent risk of uh, of uh, of bleeding requiring packing but uh, discharge on the same on the same day so i think it's i haven't found there's a lot of complications with this procedure at all yeah. yeah have you noticed any other complications apart from bleeding doesn't tend to happen very much in my experience not really um a bit of crusting certainly for the the turbulent patients that i do uh, yeah. so i give them creams and, and tell them to rinse um and that that is a bit of an issue sometimes but uh, that's relatively minor um, yeah. So yes, the complications have been have been very few, which which is of course uh, great. Um, and I try to see them relatively early, within a few weeks post operatively, to to keep an eye on things. Um, but um, but uh, yeah, minimal uh, complications. 
Um, and and I, I say to them beforehand, whether it's a turbinate procedure or even a polypectomy, that it's possible they'll have to have it again. Um, as we know, these things recur. Um, and as long as the, the local anesthetic technique goes goes well, then um, you know, they, they don't seem too averse to the idea of if, if it came to it, they'd have to have it done again by the same method. Yeah. Yeah. And t- tell me, how do you do your turbinate surgery? That's, I haven't done any turbinates yet. How do you, what do you do? So I've either done largely um, radio frequency um, or coblation, which, which is fairly similar. I, I think I'm yeah. leaning more towards radio frequency. Um, I'll often do an out fracture at the same time, um, just to give it a little bit of extra space, uh, certainly warning the patient I've had, I've, I've tried a, um, a, term, a terminoplasty, a more traditional terminoplasty, um, so debriding the, the lateral surface. Um, I, I would sort of normally reserve that for, for someone that's failed um, mm. the, the other techniques because they are, they are very simple, minimally invasive, and, and whilst they don't always work, um, we, we, and we are looking at our data to check that there is good outcome. Um, but uh, but th- those are the, the radio frequencies largely might go to, and then the other ones yeah. uh, as necessary. Yeah. Good. I think we've we've covered a few points there, um, uh, Jonathan. Hopefully, our, our audience will find mm. those uh, interesting. I, I haven't uh, anything more to to add at this point. Uh, yourself? No, no, I don't think so. I think a bit. It's 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 as we said earlier. Just I, I, my final comment would be that if you feel the the, uh, the there is the potential for doing this kind of thing in your department. You just need to, to um, f- speak to team team members, find a way of doing it, and, and uh, once you get going, uh, it can be a very rewarding experience. Yeah, no, I would agree with that entirely. And I think you know, finding yourself a mentor as well, or somebody that you, who mm. who has some experience of this, like someone like yourself or myself, always a good way of yeah. uh, of, uh, of of doing that as well. Yeah. Good. Great. Okay. Well, let's uh, right. let's call it a wrap, as they say in the business. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Good. Enjoy the enjoy the rest of your evening. So thank you very much to Sean Carey and Jonathan Joseph. Uh, that was a very helpful run through of different techniques for local anaesthetic use in in rhinology, and also advice on setting up a new service. So I hope you'll join me for our eighth and last episode of this podcast series next week uh, where Emma King and Jeremy Jones will be discussing transoral oropharyngeal surgery.